shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. This is it, and here we go. It's the almost famous Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and with me always is my almost famous co-host, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. Uh, I guess almost famous beats uh, notorious or, or uh, any other descriptor. Well, I think we've passed notorious, so I, I think almost famous is where we are. Uh, or maybe we should say ne- nearly famous. But i got to tell you, I mean, I think one of the things that are pretty exciting is uh, we're seeing more and more mail that's coming from uh, international. We've got some uh, emails yeah. that came, and uh, so maybe we're the almost famous international uh, inside yeah, EMS. We're like, we're like the David Hasselhoff of EMS podcast. We're really big in Germany. Yeah, that's, <laughs> let's not go there. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, one of the things we haven't done, uh, you know, last uh, week we did the show with uh, ETLS and Sarah, which was awesome. And we got a lot of feedback on that. And, you know, I think that course is going to be really well. But this is going to be the first time, Kelly, we talk about the news. So uh, mm-hmm. why don't you go ahead and bring us our first news story? Uh, we got a uh, got a story um, out of Indianapolis where a state senator uh, wants uh, to expand uh, Narcan use, um, make it uh, uh, available to more providers. Uh, the headline says that Republican Senator Jim Merritt says that the number of lives saved by Indianapolis EMS with the drug Narcan has risen from 629 in 2013 to more than one 1,150 last year. Um, and uh, 14 lives saved in 2016. He's filed legislation um, to uh, to um, require or to issue a standing order for uh, Narcan for um, for public safety and and that sort of thing. Um, I take issue, you know that they. Uh, this is this is following the trend that many states are are going with uh, with Narcan use and expanding it to uh, public safety outside of EMS and and even to to lay people. Uh, but I take issue with the uh, with the assertion that it has saved lives. Um, what it has done is reversed overdoses, but you you have no way of saying it saved lives. Uh, the better way to phrase that is is boy, uh, Indianapolis is. Uh, uh, heroin epidemic has doubled in the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, and I <laughs> what think that says. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that uh, you know we talk about it tongue in cheek, but you know I think when we have these individuals, lawmakers, and and they really don't understand what's uh, you know what the drug does and what the drug is mm-hmm. all about. But here's here's the thing that I take umbrage with, and that's the fact that what are you doing to stop the abuse? Where's the yeah. re- where's the rehab centers? Where's the methadone clinics? Where's the you know the public safety announcements that says you know that we're losing people for you know it's good that you want to give the drug uh, you know because the, it's doubled from six twenty to eleven whatever it is, um, but where's the back end help? Let's not just yeah. give let's just not put the Narcan on the streets so we can wake them up and keep them from dying uh, just till the next time. But what are we doing to keep them from, uh, um, you know, getting their lives back? And, uh, you know, that's where I kind of take a little bit of uh, issue with. Yeah, it's it's a it's the bandaid on an arterial hemorrhage, and it does nothing to address the root cause. We, you know, we we need to do something about addiction recovery and counseling uh, rather than just the bandaid approach. And and 
a lot of this, I think, quite frankly, is the keeping up with the Joneses aspect. Uh, they see other states in, enacting this this type of legislation, and they want to be the next one on the bandwagon, um, neglecting to to understand how Narcan works and and the potentially harmful side effects. Uh, I I don't think it's a benign d- drug, and and I have qualms about lay people using it. Uh, I see enough people with first responder training, law enforcement officers who have no idea how Narcan works. They think you can give it for any type of drug overdose, uh, and that that it uh, just wakes them up. Um, they don't know things like you know vomiting, seizures, flash pulmonary edema, withdrawal symptoms, uh, malignant hypertension, and all those kind of things that can result from Narcan usage. And, and quite frankly, uh, many of the BLS providers that they're putting in the hands of don't know those side effects either. I think it's a wonderful drug. I think we need to expand use of it uh, and and erase some of the roadblocks uh, and the obstacles to to administering Narcan for all levels of providers. But it needs to be done with some sort of plan in mind yeah. <laughs> you know and i don't think there's much planning going on other than you know it's like oprah narcan for everyone narcan for everyone uh i just um uh i i hope that uh indianapolis gets their heroin epidemic uh, uh in check um but uh, until then uh, more narcan is not going to fix their problem yeah, and I want to take this up. I really don't want to belabor this topic, but I don't know that we spend enough time on it. But the other thing that I think we need to address is EMS's approach to how we handle these types of patients. Yeah. And the 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 bumper sticker that goes around Facebook, which really just irks me, is my EMT, Narcan, your honor student. And, you know, again, nobody nobody forces them to put the needle in their arm for the first time. And we've talked about this before. But yeah. once you're once you do, uh, you're you're kind of hooked and uh, it, you lose control relatively quickly. And, Kelly, I mean, we've known people uh, from mm-hmm. the EMS side that have had their um, that have had their way with the morphine a, a few times. And, mm-hmm. and we've seen good paramedics that have gone down the toilet relatively quickly. And I really think that we've got to change our mindset as a career field as to how we're dealing with uh, with these types of patients. And uh, they're still people, man. And, and we'll probably get yeah. a lot of backlash. But my feeling about it is, you know, we're the professionals and we've got to be able to ensure that we're delivering professional care to everybody and not passing judgment about how they got there. Yeah, you you see a lot of this in social media where where people are EMS professionals, well, people who call themselves EMS professionals are are advocating the Darwinian approach. You know, just let it sort itself out, let them die from it, and one less junkie to deal with, and which is repugnant to me. Um, we got to approach this job with a little humanity and and not judge people so harshly. Addiction's a horrible thing, horrible disease. Yeah, and even, you know, we can go, uh, you know, just uh, we're not going to take this story up, but, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, Indiana, but the Massachusetts House approves a bill aimed to uh, help opiate overdoses as well. So, you know, as we talk about Indiana, Massachusetts is also there who's looking to, um, you know, do the same things. Now, I'm all for that. I'm all for that whoever can get there to give the drug. Um, so the, as many states that we can get involved yeah. with that, I think is awesome. Let me go ahead and go to my new story. And, and here's one that always surprises me. And we talk about it all the time. And you would think that there's going to be a time where it just stops because people know that they're going to get caught. But an ambulance company owner pleads guilty to health care fraud. 
Uh, we go to Cincinnati, Ohio, and an ambulance company owner is accused of submitting more than $1.4 million in fraudulent bills to Medicare and Medicaid, has pled guilty in Ohio to health care fraud and money laundering charges. And, uh, you know, it seemed that uh, this may just have been a scheme. I mean, because if you're, if you're uh, frauding the government and laundering the money, um, there may have been more of malice this there, and that's just my opinion. That's nothing that we've heard. But Kelly, you know, we keep every time we we open the news and every time we hear about things mm-hmm. like this, it's fraud, it's fraud, it's fraud, and you wonder why Medicare is is going away from fee for service, and and Medicare is is pointing a finger at EMS for being the you know the the waste mongers. You know, even though we. Even though EMS takes up one percent of the Medicare budget, we're responsible for a lot of the downstream revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, so we think about the money that's spent. That's not a lot, but when you start to when you start to fraud the government based on these these uh, trips that you're not doing, um, it's going to be the same thing that's happening with the doctors, man. And we've got to stop. We've got to stop yeah. this process. You know. You know, we're we're one percent of the the healthcare, the Medicare reimbursement budget, but a, a disproportionately high percentage of the fraud and waste. And and there are there are plenty of those out there, and and those agencies tend to prey on on uh, new and uh, uh, new EMTs uh, just out of school. They they they'll give them a job and and and. Uh, pressure them to falsify paperwork and stretcher certification stuff, and and these guys are just happy to have a job, uh, and let they me go you, along with it. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Let me cut you off there. You've said sure. this before, have you? And I've never heard this. Do you actually know people who who had the the screws put to them that said that you need to falsify this record so we can get paid? Oh yeah, oodles. Really, oodles. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I get people. You, you you participate in some of these these social media forums, and and these guys will say, uh, yeah, you know, I've I've been asked to change paperwork, or or uh, or I've had uh, my PCR amended by um, by uh, the people in billing or my managers to reflect that the patient was stretcher uh, stretcher necessity was uh, was met, and the patient was bed confined when he actually wasn't. Um, yeah, that, that sort of thing happens. And well, it I think happens that's a different, lot though. it's predatory. Well, no, I don't well, know. Well, here it is. Here's my difference. The difference is that um, if, if someone else is changing my record, nobody's forcing me to do it. Well, no. I mean, that, that they're changing the record, but they're also uh, leaning on people to say that they were um, stri- uh, bed confined when they were not. Yes, I've, I've had that uh, that conversation more times than I can count, um, and and with people I I know personally, you, you have to keep in mind that that um, I I do a lot of work and communication with people in the Golden Triangle in the Houston area, and Harris County is for for many years was rife with fraud and abuse. They had three hundred and something ambulance services in in Harris County, Texas alone, and uh, Dallas is Dallas Fort Worth is not much far, not far behind. And uh, of those 300 and something services, probably 250 of them were, were dialysis fraud outfits. And these guys, you know, they hire new EMTs. They barely meet minimum certification standards. Uh, and they hire these new EMTs and, and either 
inculcate them with the idea that that uh, that stretcher certification is something that can be fudged uh, and foster that that sort of mentality, or they just flat out coerce them into doing things. And then when they get caught, they uh, um, they skip town, often leaving paychecks unpaid, and and uh, they'll they'll go sell the business to their brother-in-law and open it up under another name, and the cycle of fraud continues. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad in the Houston and, and Dallas areas, but it's it's you know as as the story shows, it's a uh, it's also pretty darn bad in Ohio, apparently. Yeah, but um, all right, good. Well, let's go ahead and go to our next story, and uh, this one's going to segue into our clinical issue slash guest table, but go ahead and hit us with it. Buffalo, New York, uh, elderly man being transported home from the hospital in a rural metro ambulance uh, was killed after the ambulance collided head-on with a tractor-trailer in whiteout conditions. Police say they believe that the uh, collision was weather-related, and the patient, uh, you know, prayers to his family, Joseph Sangbush, was killed in the collision. And the EMT who was in the patient care compartment was injured pretty, pretty significantly as well. The truck driver, uh, a Canada resident named Ruby Ann Kirkhoff was taken to the hospital with major head trauma. Dude, it begs the question, what the heck is someone doing uh, a non-emergent transfer in a whiteout? Why, why are they why are they transporting anyone in such it, it's a different story than you're taking a patient to the hospital for emergency care but this is a granny go home or a grandpa go home and it killed grandpa right because they had these people transporting in a whiteout what is wrong with that picture yeah and I, and I think one of the things that we got to think about is we've got to think about the safety of our people and, and again another reoccurring topic that we talk about yes. Kelly exactly but I want to go ahead and, and as we talk about this let's go ahead and transition to the clinical issue or the guest table whatever we're going to call it we're going to be joined here by John Kustash and John's a listener of ours and you know he sent me a, an email saying hey you know what I, I think we need to talk about this you know this issue of of driver safety and john went ahead and, and talked about the story uh with me that uh, last year we were talking about uh, the miami uh ambulance and the fire truck they were in the same area um whether they were going to the same calls or different calls that the ambulance blew through the light and uh crashed into the engine of course, I think it flipped the engine, if I'm not mistaken, or knocked it on its side or something like that. But just recently, we've come to find out that the driver of that ambulance was suspended for 96 hours uh, uh, post-investigation. First, John, let me, uh, let me welcome you to Inside EMS. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Kelly's here. He doesn't bite anyway. So just, uh, you know. <laughs> All right. He not does, hard anyway. Not, exactly. I was going to say it, he does bite, but he doesn't leave marks. So that's <laughs> that, yeah, that's a positive. So so, but John, let me go ahead and ask you first. And as we get ready to talk about this, I think it's a really important topic. And now you're an EMS leader. You're an EMS uh, chief, right? Uh, within your own department. So when we think about the safety of of what we give, uh, when we think about the education we give to our employees, and we think about the safety that we want them to take, and and the safety that they really take. What do you think the biggest pro the biggest problem is here? Uh, first of all, I think training is a is a problem or an, an issue that needs to be talked about nationwide. I mean, when we when we think about EMTs and and paramedics coming into our career, we're talking usually about eighteen year old to twenty twenty five year old folks, and these are people with mm -hmm. just a couple of years experience driving a, a passenger car, and we put them behind the wheel of an ambulance. 
And in a lot of locations around the state that I'm in, in Michigan, some of these services are small. They have limited resources, limited budgets. And, and literally, you give an 18-year-old EMT uh, the keys to your ambulance and say, drive safe. So training is a, is a big issue. And re-education is an issue, uh, I think. How do we quantify what we need to do for re-education and, and things like that? Um, there's, there's a lot of things that I could that I could um, drift off on topics here. And Kelly, in introducing the topic here, you brought up the, the fact that we were transporting uh, rural metro, this ambulance was transporting this patient in whiteout conditions. And I think it bears mentioning first that we don't know what the conditions were when, when they started the transport. And then though, when, when we get into the whiteout conditions, what about that transport made the EMT or the paramedic that was driving that ambulance think that he couldn't stop he couldn't pull over into a parking lot and go mm-hmm. to a safe place and wait for these whiteout conditions to cease. I mean, you know, there's there, that's in the back of my mind as well. So, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it begs the question: what is the what is the corporate culture at that particular agency? Uh, you exactly. know, is is that sort of thing frowned upon? Um, uh, is is safety something that they they only pay lip service to? I, I I'm not going to accuse them of such uh and you do make a good point this is this is just uh south of buffalo new york uh near the great lakes and apparently weather patterns can change pretty darn quickly there um but i i don't you know in our industry we've we've in, in recent years we've we've started to acknowledge this problem of of ambulance safety and and these the frequency of these vehicle crashes but i i don't think as an industry yet that we are devoting our resources and our time to the right areas. You know, Nadine Levick uh, makes very good points about ambulance design and 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 uh, the engineering behind making a safer ambulance. But yes, uh, the point remains that we could, you know, and we have, you know, the, the newer NFPA standards, uh, which uh, require so many safety features and lighting and, and, and high visibility paint schemes on ambulances to the point where it often makes buying a new ambulance prohibitively expensive and, and you're, you're thus riding the old or worn out one uh, even longer, which, which is debatable whether that actually makes you safer. But um, so much of this problem would be solved if we just quit driving like idiots. If we quit, if we curtail the use of lights and sirens, uh, had some meaningful criterion on response times and and what warrants a lights and siren response and get away from things like uh, lights and siren transport just to get back into uh, service quickly um, and that sort of thing, you know, I I love, I'll, I'll, point out the guys at night watch i i uh, i love the show and i think they do a great so job I. of showing uh i think they do a great job of representing ems but this business of of transporting everything lights and sirens no matter how trivial to get back into service quicker needs to stop and it needs to stop not just there but just about everywhere yeah and i think that one of the things that we have to think about as well is the the from the leadership aspect and you kind of touched on it right away. That was the first thing you said about the culture. And, you know, as an EMS leader, I have suspended non-emergency transfers. I've suspended some emergency transfers. They're in a hospital. Uh, they don't need to leave right away. Uh, they're in definitive yeah. care. They may need to get the specialty care. But that specialty care is not as important 
to me as the lives of those two uh, crew members that have to get home to their families in the morning. And, and, you know, it begs the question again, why are we putting our people in harm's way just so we can ensure that we have a positive P&L? You know, just because we have a, a, a positive uh, cash flow, just because we're able to bill that trip. And, you know, from the other side, John, I think you said it uh, very poignantly as well, is what are we, uh, why didn't the crew just pull over and say, I can't see and there's no way I should go further. Um, but now, uh, let me go ahead and just add to this. We are attracting the people into our career field with the thought, and you see these recruitment videos with mm-hmm. the lights and the sirens and the wet street and the, oh my gosh, and the bulletproof, whatever it is, we got to change the perception of the career field that this isn't just a run a red light and slam into a fire engine career field. Absolutely agree, Chris. Absolutely agree. I'll throw out a couple of statistics for you guys. In 2014, uh, NHTSA published a survey that encompassed the years 1992 to 2011. And from that survey, they estimate that 4,500 ambulances are involved in crashes every year. 34% of those crashes uh, result in injury. In these two collisions that, we, that we're talking about in this podcast from Evans, New York, and the city of Miami, Florida, uh, in Miami, 12 people were injured. Seven firefighters, three passengers in the ambulance, and, and two from another vehicle. In the Evans crash, we have the patient who's going um, from from uh, hospital to home who was uh, fatally injured in that crash. This these things speak volumes to me as a as an EMS leader and someone who's who's looking to affect some positive change in in this career because there's two integral parts of EMS to me. And the first thing is, once we get the call, you have to get the paramedics to the patient. And that involves driving, sometimes lights and sirens. And then we have to get the patient, once they're stabilized or in a condition that they can be transported, we have to get them to definitive care. And that involves, again, driving and sometimes lights and sirens. And I just don't know if, as a, as a profession and as a career field, we concentrate enough on, on training, re-education, and and communicating with medics and that are operating our ambulances how they're actually doing so you know i I think kelly has mentioned it before in in previous podcasts about some of the driver feedback stuff that uh, that he drives with road Mm -hmm. safety if i'm not mistaken and i myself you know when i started as a as an emt at 18 years old i started with the the emerging all safe which came into road safety and then In my, in my leadership position, my last organization, I was responsible for the driver education program corporate-wide, 600 employees. So I was a real popular guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I do. I think that, that uh, we concentrate a lot on, on medical treatment. We concentrate a lot on, on lifting and moving patients and things like that. We don't really concentrate uh, enough on training people how to operate the ambulance, um, some of the organizational expectations or the career expectations, um, you know, the expectations from your peers. And then, and then uh, you know, as we talk about new employees, those 18 to 20-year-old folks, millennials, if you will, they're, they're always telling us they want more feedback. They want to know how they're doing. They want performance evaluations. And, and uh, you know, I think that um, driver feedback programs like that will will give them some of that feedback i know there's pushback that that uh it's big brother and things like that really though we're talking about the safety of of the medics we're talking about the safety of the patient and we're talking about uh the safety of the community around 
those those involved in this in this transport. You know, I I think <laughs> it. <laughs> I had a little witticism that occurred to me. It's, it's like you can always tell the, the EMS agency that doesn't have, uh, for example, a, a policy on using a spotter when backing the ambulance. Uh, they all have ambulances with mangled rear bumpers. Um, and you can always, I think uh, uh, the corollary to that is you can always spot an agency that doesn't have a strong uh, driver education and, and monitoring policy because uh, they tend to be in more accidents. I can boast because uh, the the particular uh, operations area uh, for for my company is is the safest in the company, uh, and that's both in, in crew safety and, and the way we drive, as well. And we're we're the the reigning champs at that. But we take that sort of thing seriously. But it it never ceases to amaze me how many agencies do not. Chris, you remember when we had Philip on from from California, and EVOC or driver training is not even required uh, uh, in that state, and, right. and I just that that just boggles the mind. Well, I think. But, that, go ahead. Yeah, I think that one of the things that happens, the reason you guys are safe down there in Louisiana, is because you got swamps and bayous, and the ambulances <laughs> just sink when they. No, but I'm just kidding. But you know, so well, let me ask you this, and as we're getting up there in time, Kelly, maybe I, I can get your opinion on this. How do we now? make the transition to ensure that we're keeping our employees safe when it comes to their operation of these vehicles? Well, I I think that this is going to be a long-term transition. I I don't, Nancy uses this frequently with me, culture eats strategy for breakfast, and you can implement as many safety measures and buy more expensive, uh, better outfitted, better engineered ambulances, and you can drive monitoring systems and drive cams, but none of that is going to make a difference until you change the culture of the agency. And, And quite frankly, the only way to do that in many cases is through attrition. Uh, we need to first and foremost start recruiting people uh, that are not adrenaline junkies, and we need to start when we when we recruit and train people, emphasize the medicine and not the adrenaline rush and the rapid the lights and siren transport. Um, and as that as that culture starts to change, I think we'll start uh, we'll start uh, seeing some safer driving. Um, but until that happens, I don't think much is going to change until – I don't think there's anything we can do other than keep on doing what we're doing and get better seed corn who, who takes safety a little more seriously. Yeah, John, what do you think? I completely agree with, with uh, Kelly. I mean, we do. Well, let me write, to... let me write that down. This is the <laughs> Kelly, this is the day you found someone else to agree with you. Well, let me say that I agree with him when, I, when, he's, when he talks about um, you know, uh, fostering a culture of safety. In, in really bringing the new breed of, of EMT and paramedic up with that, with that safety in mind. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that uh, there's some sort of something in that culture in, in New York and other areas that, that makes that EMT believe that he can't stop that ambulance and, and wait for weather to clear. Uh, I think that's something that needs to be emphasized. And, you know, my, my leadership style is, is exactly that. If there's something that, that is unsafe communicate what's going on tell mm-hmm. me how you made the decision and tell me what's going to happen at, after that you know um i think that we do we need to bring people up safely and we need to make sure as leadership um that we communicate what our professional expectations are as as leadership in the entire field not just in our organization so 
Uh, one thing that I would that I would challenge new EMTs and and paramedics with is, you know, the first the first thing that we're trained to do is think about our own safety and our own well being. Mm-hmm. So when you think about your own safety and your own well being, uh, it's an exciting time to be an EMS. We've got a lot of changes coming about with with uh, design of the ambulance that Kelly mentioned. Uh, earlier and Chris I think you might have mentioned as well Um, so we've got some things coming around with changes in the back of the ambulance change in ambulance design and along with those things challenge your your leadership and and say I want to know what your expectations are for driving the ambulance and operating the ambulance safely safely and give me some some tool to give me some feedback so that uh, so that I know that I'm being safe and that I'm doing what you what you expect me to do foster that culture of safety from the ground up doesn't always have to come from the top down sometimes right. it can come from the ground up i agree and it's all great stuff and john kustash i want to thank you for joining us on inside ems it was great to have you here and kind of share some of your perspective and uh, so thank you very much for joining us i really want to thank you guys for having me uh, like you said i'm a longtime listener i enjoy every single one of your podcasts and uh, you guys keep doing the great job that you're doing and and uh, you know i look forward to, to joining you again sometime well, thank you very much for doing that, Kelly. I think it's time to put the wraps on a new show. Yeah, it was great, great episode and and great discussion. Why um, do you sound surprised when you say that? Well, because you're involved, man. That's, oh, I that's see. why I'm always. I see. Your point, point. We don't point you know, fingers John, here. We course, just fix the problems. We don't point I, I fingers. We, we fix we the problem. Ditch you and and have John as co-host from now on. Oh, okay, uh, let I'll, me do that I'll then. Need to talk to Greg about that. <laughs> All right, man. Well, get us out, get us out of here, man. For myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Email us your concerns, comments, and questions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero and our guest, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.